the psalmist uh, takes on a literary device of, of taking on each stanza, giving it each stanza, uh, dedicating it to one letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So each stanza, all eight verses beginning with the same letter of the Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet all the way through. It'd be like working through A through Z for us, uh, having eight sentences and, and keeping with the same theme all the way out. It's just a, a masterpiece, if you will, one that is truly uh, dealt with the Word of God, thought about the Word of God, dwelled upon the Word of God, and values the Word of God. And we see that in this psalm. Each psalm having a particular theme in themselves. And this one, sorrow, is at the beginning. Sorrow. God's beautiful and wonderful creation has been marred by sin. It's a reality. That's a truth. And sin has invaded every last bit of it. Therefore, there's heartache, pain, suffering, depression, loss, anxiety, shame, and rebellion. Those things run rampant throughout God's creation. And they run throughout our lives as well. So the question before us is really a few. So how do we navigate those sorrowful and dark days? How do we navigate those sorrowful and dark days? What do we do when our souls are sorrowful, troubled, and where is our hope and strength at during those times? I'm entitled this message, Strength for a Sorrowful Soul. Strength for a Sorrowful Soul. And I have three things I want us to look at. First, the sorrowful soul. Then we're going to move on to the hope and strength for one that is sorrowful. And that is God's preservation. God's preservation. And we'll end very quickly with the pursuit, the pursuit. So, the sorrowful soul, God's preservation, the pursuit. Beginning with this, this sorrowful soul, if you look with me at verse 25, he says, my soul clings to the dust, clings to the dust. The idea here is that of a mournful individual. In the Middle East during this time, the way that they would mourn is they would go about sitting in ashes and throwing dust on themselves. But, it, but he's referring to the soul, the inner man here. This isn't just a, a, a sorrow or grief that comes from, from losing a loved one. This is a deep within them uh, hurt and pain. The inner man is hurting. It's aching. Uh, in verse 20. Uh, eight, he says, my soul melts away for sorrow. New American Standard says, my soul weeps because of grief. Weeps because of grief. I think it would be worth our time to ask, what causes one's soul to be sorrowful? What causes us to go, go deep in heartache and pain? Where though it might be light outside, it seems dark and cloudy within. Well, there's several things to look at. I want to give us six. The first is internal. There's internal and external causes 
to a sorrowful soul. The first, internal sin. Internal sin. Struggle with sin. Even though God justifies a soul through Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean there's not a struggle with sin. Paul writes about this clearly in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is all a, any believer in Jesus Christ understands the battle, the war that's raging on the inside. And when the struggle with sin and sin seems to prevail, temptation seems to prevail, it can drive us to dark places of discouragement and shame and fear. David writes about this in Psalm 38. He says, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Though we might be redeemed in Jesus Christ, we allow the, the baggage and the burden of sin to weigh us down. This sometimes fleshes itself out in a life with habitual sin, unrepentant sin, sin that occurs behind closed doors, sins that your brothers and sisters don't know about, sin that, that you struggle with, you don't love that this is a part of your life, but it's there and present. There's been no relief, so shame overshadows you. This can drive us to a sorrowful heart. Another internal cause is depression. Depression. Something that we really don't even have time to unpack this topic. Depression really uh, can be a very difficult thing to deal with as an individual. And it impacts many believers in Jesus Christ. He says, I am weary from my grief, is how one translation puts verse 28. I'm weary, weak. Psalmist in Psalm 42 says, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festivals. Why are you cast down, O oh, my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Tells his soul, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. She's this inability un, 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 to, to define why is my soul downcast? Why has the lights been turned off inside? What is going on with me? Depression often feels lonely. There could maybe even be guilt, thinking, what have I done to, to have this inner darkness in me? But oftentimes it's helpful to know that there have been many strong and faithful believers in Jesus Christ that have dealt with depression. Some that have been a great benefit to the church of Jesus Christ. One is Charles Haddon Spurgeon, dealt with depression. 
He says, I suffered many times from severe sickness and frightful mental depression, seeking almost to despair. Almost every year I've been laid aside for a season, for the flesh and blood cannot bear the strain. At least such flesh and blood is mine. I believe, however, the affliction was necessary to me and has answered salutary ends. Oftentimes Spurgeon would have to find himself having to leave the country, leave his church, because his physical body could not take this inner darkness, this depression that he would incur. He also says, glory to be God, to glory be to God for the furnace, the hammer and the fowl. Heaven shall be all the fuller of bliss because we have been filled with anguish here below, and earth shall be better tilled because of our training in the school of adversity. He saw the benefit of depression and the adversities of life to draw him to his God. This internal causes moves us into a few external causes, things outside of us that brings our soul to a sorrowful state. First, I'd mention the external causes would be conflict. Conflict. Sadly, we can't escape conflict. Whether in a marriage, with our children, with our co-workers, with our family members, friends, churches, conflict comes about. Conflict can be extremely difficult to walk through. Whether the influence is outside of you, you did not produce this, this can often lead us to dark days. Uh, it, knowing that it can be disrupted, a, a unity, a fellowship, a relationship can be disrupted by just a rash word, a quick response, or even slanderous accusations can quickly find ourselves in conflict. And if you've been in conflict, which I'm sure you have, it almost can feel like there's a boulder on top of you, feeling like there's no hope in the midst of this. How is this relationship ever to be back to what it was? Where will we find peace in this storm? Conflict can often drive us into a troubled and dark time. David, he knew conflict. Whether it was Saul, who he loved and was very loyal to, or whether it was his own son, Absalom, he says in Psalm 55, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. What's the circumstance? He says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. It's a dear friend, close one, conflict. Another external cause is pain. And I mean physical pain, which can be a diagnosis that we don't want to hear, or can be a chronic pain that keeps you up at night. 
or distracts you throughout the day. We know Paul knew pain, knew pain in regards to the persecution that he, he suffered, but also he was given a thorn in the flesh. Even asking the Lord, pleading with the Lord to take it from him. What does the Lord say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Pain, physical pain, sickness. Another external cause is the loss of a loved one. Losing a family member, a spouse, a child even, a close friend. These are times that we grieve and it goes deep within us. John Calvin was never known to be a romantic man, if you read any uh, historical biographies. Never saw himself marrying a woman. Um, but he eventually did find a, a suitable companion. Was married for less than a decade. Uh, they lost a child, and then his wife, still from complications from that birth, passed away. This giant of a figure who even thought he was going to go to bed, go to death without being married. He says, I struggled it best as I can to overcome my grief. I've lost the best companion of my life. Losing someone we love is very difficult. And there's emotions that are deep within us that we experience that it seems as if the light has been turned off. Last is persecution or affliction, and possibly the context of this psalm here. Possibly the context of this psalm. We're not sure. But as far as we know, the Christian life, the, the life of the people of God, it is met with opposition in this world. And many have lost their lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of truth. It was a theme throughout the scriptures. It's been a theme throughout church history. David writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me those who would attack me with lies. Oftentimes, persecution, affliction, can be as simple as a co-worker or even a family member mocking us for our faith. That can often drive us to a sorrowful, sorrowful soul. So how should you respond? Where can we find hope when our soul is sorrowful? Well, first, I want to ask you, dear friend, to consider your soul. If you're yet to repent and believe on Jesus Christ, I want you to consider something very important today. Life is temporal. You will one day take your final breath. And there are only two options at that point. You will either be in the presence of the Lord for eternity or in hell. True places. Your soul will be met by an eternal body that will endure 
both places. And I want to tell you a message of hope early on for every soul. And that is the fact that God in his love and kindness sent Jesus Christ to die upon the cross, to take on the sin and punishment for those that would come to him in faith and repentance. They're given security of eternal life and they're given present comfort today. So your soul is very important. It matters. It goes beyond just the physical right now. The call is to faith and repentance, whether young or old. Look to Jesus Christ, the sorrowful soul. But where's our hope? Our hope is in one place, and that is God himself. And that gets us to God's preservation, which is the bulk of this psalm. God's preservation. He's preserving us here through his word. Would you look with me at verse 28 again? First line says, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Or revive me according to your word. There, there's, there's several ways that the Lord preserves us according to his word. And we'll see that here in the next several verses. So first, he gives us life. He gives us life. So how does the word of God revive or preserve us well we could go to genesis chapter one the the account of creation in there it says over and over again verse three verse six verse 11 verse 14 20 24 26 and god said and as god said action took place why because the word of god is powerful. The written word of God is powerful and able to give life, to revive the soul, to strengthen the soul. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that which is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The word of God demonstrates the power of God and has the ability to bring life or revive life within an individual. So he gives life. So how does the word of God preserve or give us life? I'd like to turn to two places in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to read the first three verses of Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you turn there with me. Deuteronomy is just a couple of weeks before the Israelites are going to cross the Jordan. Moses would not be uh, following them into the promised land because of, of, of his own sin earlier in the story. And he is, is instructing this, this body, this young body, the children of those that came out of Israel. And he's instructing them, calling them to remember three things. What God has done. What God has said and who they are to love. Those are the basic messages of Deuteronomy. Remember what God has done. Here's what he has said. And remember who you are to love. This is the, the, the thrust behind every bit of the message that he has. This is one long extended sermon here. Uh, compiled into one book. He says in Deuteronomy 8, 1-3. 
the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, that which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Whether Moses was aware of it or not, he had a timeless application and illustration to the necessity and the life-giving substance the Word has for us. We're, we're, we're thousands of years from this event. Modern technology has produced so many wonderful things like fast food restaurants. Praise God for those. And yet we still understand hunger. We still understand the necessity. Even, even all these years later with all the technology, we still need food to sustain us, to give us the nutrients that we need, to give us life. And Moses said, beyond the physical food, you need the spiritual food that is only provided in the Word of God. It gives you life. This is, the, this is the sorrowful soul runs to the only place they know where to be fed from. And that is the Word of God. The Word of God. Again, chapter 32. Would you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32? Towards the end, Moses tells a song and then begins to give blessings and cursings based on the obedience of the people. Now, a lot of these curses wouldn't come until later on and eventually climax as they're exiled. But he gives them a song that he wants them to remember as they go into the promised land. And at the end of this song, in chapter 32, verses 44 through 47, he says something, something very important. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. I'm here to tell you that the word of God is no empty word, but it's your very life. As you need air to breathe to keep on functioning, you need the word of God in your life. And the close connection here is obedience. Obedience to God. It's a demonstration of our devotion and love towards him. Obedience to the Lord. We're called to love him in this way. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The word of God gives us life. It sustains us, keeps us. One commentator on, 
on Deuteronomy 8 says this, as the natural life is sustained by bread, so the spiritual life is sustained by the word of God. It is not merely going to the Bible to find doctrines there or to have our opinions or views confirmed. It is very much more than this. It is going to the Bible for the staple commodity of life, the life of the new man. It is going there for food, for light, for guidance, for comfort, for authority, for strength, for all in short that the soul can possibly need from first to last. We're sustained by the word of God. We're revived by the word of God. Next in Psalm 119, in God's preservation of us, he teaches us. He teaches us. In verse 26, he says, When I told him my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Did you catch what he did up front, though? When I told of my ways, or recounted my ways. He, he's gone before the one that would listen to him. I, I hope you understand, God is not a psychiatrist or even a close friend. God knows your sorrowful state. He knows where your heart is. He knows the trouble better than you know it yourself. And he loves for his people to come before him and just spill it. Give it all to him. He wants it all. Jesus Christ says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Him, what a friend we have in Jesus. One verse says, we have trials and temptations. Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. God loves for his people. To just tell him. Tell of his ways. Recall, here, here's my soul, Lord. It seems as if there is no hope today. I can't do it. Let him have it. He loves it. But do you see what he does? After retelling the Lord, and the Lord answers him. And his response is, Teach me. Teach me your word. In this sorrowful time, I, I want something from you. I want you to teach me the word of God. What an interesting petition on behalf of the psalmist. In the midst of dark times, he asked for the psalmist to teach him the word of God. Maybe a prayer of, that we could, we could follow an example. This is a theme throughout the psalms, but especially Psalm 119. There are many instances he says, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes in verse uh, 12. Uh, verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Verse 171, my lips pour forth praise for you. Teach me your statutes. He loves to be taught by the Lord. And you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, there's no other place. I mean, this is, this is inside knowledge here. Something that, that we can't 
gain on our own. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. God has equipped us to understand this powerful book that contains his very words. And he teaches us. I mean, if you're a reader and you have a certain novel or even historical account and you, it's like, man, I would love to sit down with the author and pick his brain on the, the research or where did he get this idea or she get this idea. I'd love to know more about that. Getting to sit down with the author and get to understand that would be so wonderful. Or, or maybe it's, a, it's an object, it's a, it's a, a, a building or a, a bridge built many years before and want to sit down with the engineer. How did you come up with this? How did you work your way around this problem and this problem? And hear from them the word of God. We have the ability to go to the author of the text and ask him, teach me. And he's faithful to teach his people. He loves that kind of heart. A heart that longs to learn. And that's what the word there teach. It's, it's actually a two-sided uh, of the same coin here. There's, it's the teaching, but it's the expecting to learn. Learning is not easy. Uh, there, there's children amongst us that could all agree learning is not easy. A new math concept or, or some uh, new understanding in, in, in science or we're trying to understand things or comprehend these things. This is, it's not easy. It work. You're being trained in a new field. It's fuzzy at first. The, the initial response, I'll never grasp this. But learning is difficult. And, and the Word of God, it should be said, studying the Word of God, it's hard. But we've been equipped. We have the Holy Spirit. But God has also given us the privilege to come to Him and to plead with Him, teach me your Word. It's, it's good to understand the Word of God is valuable and worth time preparing for. Mount Everest is 29,000 feet. There's actually debate on the last 100 feet there amongst different individuals, but it peaks over 29,000 feet. There's just been a handful of attempts prior to 1980 of successful journeys up to the peak. Many lives taken by that mountain. Things have advanced, technology has advanced, but still today, in order to uh, ascend that mountain, there takes time, preparation, physical training, learning the weather, knowing the best time, uh, carrying equipment. There's things that it entails to reach that peak. The Word of God takes time, preparation. We should give time to learning the Word of God. Take time to study the Word of God. In the midst of sorrowful times, why not direct your attention to the one place that revives the soul? Listen to what he says in verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. He, the aim for understanding, the aim of study, is so that I can observe this beautiful scenery 
on top of this peak of your word and see your wondrous deeds, producing therefore praise. And some, some actually struggle with this. Is this meditate or muse is another translation. Spurgeon liked the word talk. Some translators actually use the word talk so that I can talk of your wondrous deeds. During sorrowful times, it just consumes us. It robs us of sleep, and all we can talk about is the pits. But the Word of God, what it does is He's preserving us and teaching us. It enables us to have something better to talk about, which is God Himself. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, when a man understands the way of the divine precepts, he never talks of his own works. And as the tongue must have something to speak upon, he begins to extol the works of the all-perfect Lord. Give me your word. Revive me according to your word during this, this hopeless, dark season in order that I can think upon that instead of myself so that I can in turn praise you and glorify you. This is the medicine that he has for a sorrowful soul, is praise. And the word of God directs us in that way. Lastly, he removes the false way. So in God's preservation, he gives us life according to his word. He teaches us the word, and he removes the false way. Look at verse 29. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. Yet again, graciously teach me your law. There, there's three observations very quickly. The, the psalmist identifies there is a false way. Simple, right? Then the, the logical conclusion, there is a true way and there is a false way. We know that God is true, therefore his word is true, and that's the true way. Anything that opposes the word of God would therefore be False. He identifies there's true and false ways. That's something our culture has all jumbled up. It's all fuzzy and cloudy as to what is true and what is false and, and very relative for them. It could be true for you, but not for me. That's false for you, but not for me. That is contrary to the word of God. We have the truth. And he calls and identifies the false way. Number two, what does he do? do? He says, remove it far from me. The, the reality is, because of, act, because of the act of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, we all have the false way within us. If we were to choose which path, it would be the false way. This is the, the issues of the human heart. Taint it. And disrupt it by sin. We're, we're rebellious by nature, and our bent is towards the false way. What does he say? Put false ways from me, and in, instead, graciously grant me your law. Graciously teach me your law. New American Standard says, Grant me your law. He, he acknowledges that. A third observation there is he goes to the one that can do that. The one that can redirect him on a path that is right and true. 
a prayer that comes from this that I thought of is, Lord, instill in me a holy hatred, disdain for the false way that's in me. Put it away from me. I don't want to see it. Instead, grant me your word. It's the preservation that we find in God. Lastly, very quickly, I'd like to direct us to the pursuit. There's a turn. You can see it in the text. It's a description of the circumstance and petition, petition, petition. And then there's this turn, this determination, this pursuit for the word of God. Look at Look at first, determination. I've chosen the way of faithfulness in verse 30. I've set your rules before me. This, this faithfulness, firmness, steadfastness. It, it speaks to actually fidelity and morality here. It's like I've, I've chosen the way of faithfulness or the faithful way. I've chosen what is right and honorable. That's what I'm choosing. In, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of of pain in the midst of heartache, I'm going to choose and I'm just going to do what's right. Have you ever met a brother or sister in Christ who's assumed that their lowly state has permitted them to sin or allowed them to justify sin? Even during sorrowful times, Skin is, sin is inexcusable. We are called to choose the faithful way, the right way, the pure way. We're to run to that, be determined in that way. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. See the contrast in the passage? Verse 25, dust is on my soul. It's clinging to my soul. Now, your word, oh God, that, that's, that's what I'm clinging to. That's hold fast to. It can't be shaken. It's consumed with the word, clinging to the word, a life that longs for the word, wants it. And in the plea, put me not to shame because I've put this way, put this way before me. Set my eyes on your testimonies. This devotion, determined devotion, and this direction that he runs in verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So I don't know about you, but during Christmas time, there's several movies that we must watch as a family, and one of those is The Grinch. Uh, I've actually seen, I've not watched the, 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 the video, but I have seen where doctors, medical doctors, look at the condition of the Grinch from a small heart to three times the size and what that would do to a man if that happened. But the Grinch, enlarge my heart. This is the, the idea here of enlarging the heart is enlarge my understanding. I, 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 want, I want to have a bigger Uh, view so I can get more in, extend my arms out so I can grab more of your word. I want more. There's no contentment and just a little. I need more 
of your word because I'm not walking. He doesn't say walk. I'm running. I run in the way of the commandments. Sorrowful times, you're moping around, but we see this, this, this psalmist from clinging to the dust. He's up and he's sprinting in the way of the commandments of the Lord. The preservation of God through his word has brought this man to a pursuit that is filled with devotion, with a direction, and with determination to live a pleasing life before his God. There, there are many things that we could ask ourselves as we look at this. I mean, one, one thing I'd like to ask is what do you or who do you approach during sorrowful times? What's, what's your action plan? And if it's not the Lord, why not? And, 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 and in the midst of sorrowful and grieving times, do you take it to the Lord in prayer? Are you encouraged by the word? I'd encourage you to walk in that way. Are you teachable? We heard it in Spurgeon, affirming that, hey, the, the adversity we face, it's just going to make heaven all that more sweeter. That's a teachable soul. Notice the psalmist, he didn't run away from God when trouble came. When his heart was sad, when it was dark, he went to the Lord. And because the psalmist knew that the Lord preserves and keeps his people. It's critical for us in that way. I want to read once more a verse from what a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Or what peace we often forfeit, or what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I encourage you, brother, sister in Christ, as you encounter these sorrowful times, which will come, pray that you look to God's preservation and you would pursue his word faithfully and consistently. And, and this morning, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. That door, that access to the throne room was made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ has enabled you to draw near to the one that we call holy, holy, holy. That transformation from being an enemy and hostile to a child of God is something that we don't forget. We remember the work of Christ and the privilege to draw near. And that's what we're going to do this morning with the table before us. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance that we've been given and commanded to.
partake of this meal, to remember the sacrifice, the work accomplished on the cross, taking on our sin and punishment and the wrath of God, bringing us near. It's, it's a time of renewing and committing our life through faith and, and repentance this morning, through faith and repentance. We, we're here in a moment going to examine ourselves before we take and remember the wonderful privileges that we have in Jesus Christ. It's also realizing our future hope. One day, we'll be at the table with him, with one another, commemorating and giving him honor and praise for salvation. So, the Lord's Supper. Who can take it? Well, baptized believers can take the Lord's Supper. So if there are children gathered with us today who have not professed Christ or been baptized, uh, they should not participate. We say this many times. This is a wonderful opportunity, parents, to direct your children to the gospel. This is the gospel displayed as we observe and remember the body and the blood of Christ broken on our behalf. Baptized believers... If you're a guest here with us today, you are welcome to participate. If you're a baptized believer of a member of an evangelical church that preaches the gospel of salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you'd be permitted to take it at your local congregation, then we'd love for you to receive it with us today. And as we take some time here in a moment to examine ourselves, and if you realize I have unrepentant sin or harboring uh, unforgiveness or bitterness toward a brother or sister in Christ, I encourage you to let that the elements pass you this morning. Let's take some time to examine ourselves in prayer.